Exodus chapter number seven. I'm done yet babbling here. I'm going to get right into it. Exodus chapter number seven. I am uh, enjoying these Wednesday nights. I know this crowd were a little bit more intimate, um, but there are so many uh, others that are in the other classes. It was good. I just walked over from the chapel and a lot of people uh, taking that foundations class. And what uh, we want to do, I was actually just talking to Tom um, uh, this evening. You know, the goal is to get people serving, get people involved. How many of you noticed Tom was playing the guitar on Sunday? Wasn't that good? Yeah, we had, now we had the volume turned all the way down on him, but it, it was good. We enjoyed it. <laughs> um, uh, just getting him involved. And I think, Robert, you're playing here soon, aren't you? This Sunday? So I appreciate all those getting involved. I believe this. God gave every single person a gift, and God wants you to use that gift for him. And um, we use that church. He ordained um, the home in the church, and I believe that we are to use those talents as we lead our homes and as we are involved in our church and leading the church. But it's more than just service. I think we got to know what we believe and why we believe it, right? There's so much of the Word of God that if we're not careful, we... we um, we rely on, well, I think I heard that, or I think someone told me that. And I challenged someone this just this past week. We were talking about some end-time prophecy. And someone said, well, where is that in the Bible where it talks about? And they named this thing that, that uh, they had heard. I said, it's not. No, no, I know it is. I know it is. And I said, it's not. I said, show me where it's at. And they got on their phone, and they tried to find it, and it's not there. And sometimes, if we're not careful, we believe something because we were told something, and we don't even know what, where we got it from. And I think that we ought to know why we believe what we believe. And that's why these classes that we have are so valuable and so helpful. In the, um, in the financial class, now we have about half of that class. Um, I think there's 15 families. Half of that class are families from our community. Um, but they take a little survey and uh, in that class, they all, all 15 families would take a survey the first day of that class. And in that survey, um, uh, they talk about their debt. And um, uh, there's a lot of people that have a lot of debt. And the Bible has financial principles that we can apply that would help us get through those things so that debt is not uh, overbearing and, and, and hurting us so that we can't then give God what is his. And so... All of these classes, I'm hoping uh, our church sees a value of these, the, the continued class. Um, we're, we're told to, to give the gospel, and we're also told to teach others. And so the second part of the, of, of the Great Commission is discipleship. And, and so just grounding our people. This class, and you have your notes here this evening, and you can go to sleep a little bit. You don't have to stay awake all the way because there's no blanks. Um, in these notes, all right? But gave you a night off here to, to... My wife told me last week, she sat me down and she said, you don't follow your notes, you don't use the right points, and you're confusing. She said it was horrible. Um, so I'm going to stick to my notes. I'm going to tell you 1A, 1B, um, so I don't get in trouble tonight, all right? But this class, we are looking through, we are looking through the book of Exodus, we know the stories, right? Moses, he is born to the, the Hebrews. They're in bondage. They're slaves to the Egyptians. How did they get there? They got there because Joseph was sold into slavery. And Joseph then um, uh, became second command of all of Egypt. He was the dreamer. God took him from the prison to the palace. And, and we know all of those stories, the Red Sea, the manna. I want to look deep, take those stories and really look deep into those stories. How many plagues were there in, in, uh, when God brought uh, Israel out of Egypt? Somebody over here, who said it? 10, there's 10 plagues, right? So we know that, right? 10 plagues. I want to really look this evening at those 10 plagues and tonight in your notes there, does everyone have notes? Did you folks get notes? We're going to give you some all the way in the back there. Who... Who needs a set of notes here tonight? Okay. 
We, um, I want to look at some things here tonight. This is the, the, the purpose that we're going to find here, starting in Exodus chapter number seven, that they may know that I am God. God is interested in everyone knowing who he is, all right? And so that's our theme, that's our main, main idea. And his desire is that everyone would know he is God and there is none other. And so we find here in Egypt, there is a uh, uh, idolatry, there is um, um, a worship of the land, there's a worship of the sky, and there's a worship of the Nile River. And those three things are very, very important, all right? So I want you to, to get those, and we're going to come back to that thought, because I'm going to show you what God did to prove to Egypt and prove to Israel that he is God, and there is none other. All right, I want to ask you this question. Just as we begin, by way of introduction, who is your God? Who is your God? God would be the one, God's desire is to be the one that we worship, we rely on, and we look to. Right? Egypt, now to set this setting here, Egypt, they had the God of the Nile. The Nile River was what cleansed them. The Nile River is what brought their food, what brought trade, right? They fished and they got fish out. The, the merchants would, would get there through the Nile River. They, um, uh, the Nile would, would give them relief. Now, think of how hot it is here in Ohio. Imagine what the temperature would be like in the desert of Egypt. It'd be pretty hot. Now, how many of you are glad tonight there's air conditioning that we can sit in? Amen? How many say amen for air conditioning? Praise the Lord, right? Now, how many of you, if you didn't have air conditioning, the next best thing would be you would sit in front of a fan, right? So you would say, amen, praise the Lord for electricity. Well, let's take all of that out of the desert and let's put you inside of a building that's hot and humid and dry. And I mean, you're just, to get into the water, to get into the Nile, what you would find is refreshment as well. And so the Nile River brought refreshment to you, it brought relief to you, it brought cleansing to you, it brought uh, 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 trade to you, it brought finances to you. This was an important thing. And so what the Egyptians did is they worshipped the God of the Nile. The land, the sky, these were all things that the Egyptians worshipped. They were a land uh, that they had other gods or idols that they would worship. And so uh, God is desiring to show Egypt and Israel through these plagues who he is. And there is none other other than God. And so our question, I believe this is a very important question that we need to answer is this, who is our God? Who do we rely on? I'll ask this question at the end as well, but I think it's important for us to, to, to listen through this and ask this, what do we depend on in our life. Right now in your life, what is the one thing that you just could not live without because you think you couldn't survive? What is the one thing that if it got taken from you, it's over? What would that be? What are, what are some things that, that could be in our life? Anybody? Oxygen. Oxygen, okay. Something else. Money. Okay. What else? Family, okay. Steak. <laughs> we wouldn't know. We don't get that. <laughs> what else? Who else? So we money, water. We have family. Um, how about our houses, our transportation, material things? I mean, these are all things that that they're necessary, but are they a priority? Do we look to those things or do we look to God? Is there anything that we look to that if God chooses or God allows to be removed from our life, that our life, it would just fall apart? And so God's desire is for us to look to him. And we've got to understand that because he is God. What the Egyptians looked to the Nile for, God desired them to look to him for. It wasn't the God of the Nile that gave the Egyptians what they thought they were getting. It was God in heaven. 
And it wasn't the gods of Egypt that Israel was going to look to when God brought them out of Egypt. It was the God of heaven. It was the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. And that is who God desired for the world to, to, to look to. And what he was going to do is call out a people so he could show his people who God was so that all the world would see who their God was and turn to their God. And so we find this question. The book of Exodus is a story that it shows us who the real God is. And so the question is, who is our God? And we're going to look at the plagues. And so I'm hoping um, uh, we'll get uh, through some of this. I don't know if we'll get all of this. I didn't get through all of this in the one o'clock service. So we'll get as far as we can here um, this evening. And we need to understand that there is something bigger going on with these 10 plagues than just what we see at first glance. Do you ever think about it? What was God doing? Why these 10 plagues? Why these 10? Why 10? And why these specific? Do you think they were just random plagues? You think God was just choosing a few plagues for no reason? I want to show you this evening as we look into this, I believe that there's specific reasons why God chose these specific plagues. And the thought being this, his desire was to show there is none others, okay? And so these plagues, they all fell uh, in the areas of life that were supposed to be protected by the Egyptian gods. It's important for us to see that. Egypt depended upon the worship of their false gods to give them protection in Egypt. God used these 10 plagues to show the Egyptians, your gods can't protect you. What you're depending on can't give you what you think it gives you. I'm the only one that can give you this. I am the one and true only God. James Boyce said this, there were about 80 major deities in Egypt all clustered about three great natural forces of the Egyptian life. Those three forces were the Nile River, the land, and the sky. And the first two plagues, is interesting as we find this out, right? So we got the land, the Nile River, and the sky. Those were the three great resources, and those were the three uh, 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 deities they, they would worship. There was 80 gods or so that the Egyptians at that time would worship, all centered around the land, the, the, the Nile, and the sky, the first two plagues, as we see this evening, they were against the gods of the Nile. The first two plagues that God did is what he was doing is he was showing the Egyptians and showing the Israelites that he is superior than the gods that the Egyptians worship. So the first two plagues we find, they're against the gods of the Nile. The next four plagues were against the land gods. And then the final four plagues were against the gods of the sky and then obviously culminating in the death of the firstborn. And so what God was doing, again, this is, I know I'm repeating this here, but it's important to get this. Because if we miss it, we just think there's 10 plagues. God just wanted to give them out. What's well, the purpose? Does it really matter the 10 plagues? Oh, it matters greatly. Because what God was teaching them is he is God. There's none other. Their gods that they worship aren't worthy to worship. They, they can't give them defense. They can't give them life. They can't give them safety. They can't give them protection. He's calling the, Egypt, the Israelites out of Egypt to worship him. His desire is for them not to bring anything of influence by the Egyptians into the promised land. Now, how long has the, have the Jews, the Hebrews, been in, in bondage here in Egypt? For over 400 years, 470 years or so. So we're talking about multiple generations now being raised in Egypt. And God desired to get Egypt out of his people as much as he desired to get his people out of Egypt. You know what I mean by that? And so they have, for over 470 years, they are watching the people of Israel. They're seeing them worship their gods. They're depending on the Nile. They're depending on the land. They're depending on the sky. 
And so God is going to do a work through these plagues that is going to show his people, I am God. I am the one that you depend on. Don't believe, don't take anything that you have seen in your society. Don't take anything that you've seen worship and bring that into the promised land because I am God. And so what he did he said this, I'm going to show plagues. I'm going to put plagues against the three areas that they worship. And God put his glory on display by judging these false gods. And what he showed was this, he is almighty. I think it's important for us to understand, God shows Egypt and God shows the Hebrews, he is almighty, all right? And so we find Number one, there's no other gods, and there's one dominant theme. And God wants everyone to know that he is God, and there's no other. And we find this theme, it echoes all throughout the Bible. We see it in Exodus, we see it all throughout the Bible. And isn't it ironic that religion today, they want to add to that? You know, there is some... I think some 700 million gods that the, the uh, Indians worship. Could you imagine that? Everything is a god. And what they'll do is they will add Jesus. He'll just be one. We might think that, well, Jesus isn't, isn't worshipped in India. That's not necessarily true. He is worshipped as one of the gods. They have him as the same levels of the other gods. He's not seen as supreme. He's not seen as the way, the truth, and life. He is, he is one of the gods. So he introduced him to Jesus. Great. I don't want to offend any god, so I'll add him to everything I'm doing. And God is showing Israel and showing Egypt that he's not a god to be added. He is the god to be worshipped. He's the one and only god. He's not one of many. He is only the Almighty, and there is none other. And so we find this, and you can put these in your notes, and you can find this uh, uh, later here. Joshua chapter 24, 14 uh, is another area that you find where God is showing that to Joshua in his leadership. Isaiah 42, another, another time in the, in the history of Israel, you'll find where God is saying that also again. And turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter number four, if you would. Deuteronomy chapter number four. And I want you to see, we're going to fast forward from Exodus all the way now to the uh, book of Deuteronomy. And in verse number 34, Deuteronomy 4:34, we find that God, he says this, or hath God essayed to go and take him a nation from the midst of another nation by temptations, by signs, and by wonders, and by war, and by a mighty hand, and by a stretched out arm, and by great terrors, according to all that the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. In verse number 35, he goes on to say this, unto thee it was showed that thou mightest know that the Lord, he is God, there is none beside him. What God is reminding his people, I brought you out of Egypt. I did all those signs. I did all those wonders. Why? God's saying it's because there is no God like me. It was just like he just kept reminding himself. Jesus said what? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. What is he saying? The same thing God was saying back in Egypt. There is only one God. There is no other God. I'm the one to be worshiped. There's none else like me. I'm the one... To be, to be worshiped and praised. And so that's the theme that we see throughout all the Bible is that God is the God to be worshiped. All right, and so we find this, we find this in point number two. There's four recurring emphases that I want us to look at here in chapter number seven. There's four, four recurring emphases that we find. And I want you to look with me in Exodus chapter number seven in verse number Eight, please. All right, verse number eight. The Lord spake unto Moses and to Aaron, saying, When Pharaoh shall speak unto you, saying, a, Show a miracle for you, then thou shalt say unto Aaron, Take thy rod and cast it before Pharaoh, and it shall become a serpent. And Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord hath commanded. And Aaron cast down his rod before Pharaoh and before his servants, and it became a serpent. 
Then Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, now the, now the magicians of Egypt, they also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod, and they became serpents, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. And he hardened Pharaoh's heart that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord had said. Now I want you to see there's several things here that we're going to find Look with me in verse number six of the same chapter. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them, so did they. In verse number 10, and Moses and Aaron went in unto Pharaoh, and they did so as the Lord had commanded. Now, this is interesting because what we find is, I want to show you these four recurring emphases that appear in this episode and throughout all the plagues. We're going to find some things that we are going to see here. The first thing that I want you to see here is obedience. Obedience. Now, I want you to think about the story of Moses. When Moses was first introduced to God, did Moses say, as soon as God said to him, I want you to go do this, what did Moses say? I'm ready, let's go. Right, we studied this in the first, our first lesson. What did he say? Every reason why he couldn't. I can't speak, I can't do this. You want me to do what? He sat there and argued with a burning bush. The guy's crazy. Right, I mean, you're watching this bush and it doesn't burn. You're hearing the voice of God. I'd do whatever it told me to do. Not Moses. Moses says, I, okay, God, I'll do this, but I'm not going to do it. You've got to let Aaron come with me. And so Moses, it was kind of like partial obedience. I'll do it as long as I can do it my way. And God says, okay, do it your way. And we learned what happened with that. He said this, what? I'm going to let Aaron be a, a mouthpiece for me. And God said, okay, let Aaron be a mouthpiece for you. That's fine. And so Aaron did. We fast forward to Mount Sinai when, when, when Moses is up in the mountain getting the Ten Commandments from God. Remember, um, uh, uh, the people say, Moses is up there a long time, Aaron. What should we do? And Aaron said, bring me all your gold. And he put all this gold together. He melted it down. He made a golden calf. And the people listened to him. Why? Because remember, all the way back when Moses was partially obedient, he said, give me Aaron to speak for me. He spoke for you, and the people listened. It was against God. See, Moses got what he wanted, but what he found is not what he wanted. And so what we find is consistently leading up to chapter number seven, Moses always obeyed, but it was always reluctant. All right, so what did he do? All right, Aaron will go. He goes before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh says, no, I'm not going to let your people go. And so what does Moses say? All right, God, why are you doing this? And so Pharaoh makes it harder. Remember last week, I think it was we learned the whole discouragement that Moses went through. Pharaoh made it harder on Moses, and the people come out and say, Moses, yeah, we were slaves before, but now he's beaten us. Now we got to find our own straw. Now you just made life more miserable for us. And what did Moses do? God, what'd you do this for? It was always this hesitance. It was always this partial obedience. God, I'll do this. Like that little boy, the teacher said, sit down. And the little boy just looked at the teacher. Kristen, you getting this? And the little boy said, the little boy stood there and the teacher said, sit down. The little boy just looked at her. And the teacher said, you sit down or I'll sit you down. That little boy sat down. He said to the teacher, I'm sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. <laughs> Defiance. Defiance. It's not obedience, is it? That's Moses. I'm going to Pharaoh. I'm going to Pharaoh on the outside, but on the inside, I'm not doing it. You know what I find this? Something changed in Moses' life. Because we get to chapter number seven, and the Bible says this in verse number six. And Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded them, so did they. We get to verse number 10 of the same chapter, and you don't find now where Moses and Aaron, now where they find to make excuses. Now the hard time comes, the difficult comes, the discouragement comes, and they're ready to quit. All right, God, you said, no, what you find is they say this, we'll do whatever you say. 
You know what? I believe this. We as Christians, we need to take that advice and that, that challenge here. And we need to realize this, that this should be every single person's response to God's word. Immediate. It should be instinctive and it should be out of loving obedience. My wife yesterday she had some things to do here at the church and getting ready for the dinner tonight. And so she, uh, our two oldest ones are at camp. And so we have this thing at our home. When you get up, you make your bed, you, you um, uh, get something to eat, you brush your teeth, and you get ready for the day. That's just the, the rule. And, and the kids know that rule. So my wife was up here early and did some, shop, did some shopping and some things and came back and got home uh, uh, around lunchtime. And um, uh, she comes in the house and beds aren't made. It, nothing was done. And she said, what, what, is it a vacation day today? I mean, did somebody, do you know what you're supposed to do? And, 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 and all those that have kids know that look like, what? She says, you know what you're supposed to do. You disobeyed. And so we left them there and we went to see Hong uh, Buer and the baby and came back home. And, and on the way home, we were talking. Michelle was a little bit discouraged. And, she, and so what the, she was going to do is take them up to the pool and let them swim. But she said, since you didn't do what you're supposed to do, I'm going to take that away from you because you weren't obedient. You didn't do it the way you're supposed to do it. So on the way home, we leave, and she knows then that they know they're not going to get the reward. And so on the way home, she said to me this. She said, I wonder if when I get there, the beds are going to be made, teeth are going to be brushed, they're going to be dressed, or since I took the reward away, are they going to be like, hey, <laughs> what even, what's the purpose now? You know, We're in trouble. We're not swimming, so who cares? We're not making our bed today. Woo. Can't get punished twice, right? And I said, well, what are you going to do if they did do it? I said, why don't we show them mercy? When we get home, if they did do it, because you didn't tell them they had to, they knew you were upset, but if they took it upon themselves to be obedient, let's show them mercy and tell them, this is what mercy looks like. This is a great learning experience. And so she said, yeah, that's a great idea. I think she just wanted to go to the pool. Um, <laughs> she gets home and guess what? The little one had the bed made, did everything she's supposed to do. Now, we have one that, um, we have one. And I'm not going to tell you which one it is, but she sits right in the middle of all the five. And um, she's, she's the one. And the two younger ones did exactly what they were supposed to do. And... and we had a dog one time that wasn't allowed on the couch. But when we got home, the couch was always warm. We caught the dog. One time, the dog didn't realize we were coming back in the house, didn't hear because she was in a deep sleep. Hurt us too late. One paw was off the couch, and the three were on the couch. You know what I mean? Like, oh, busted. <laughs> got caught. Well, that's what my one child looked like when she was running down the steps with her dirty clothes, when she heard mom and dad opening the door, like, oh no, I didn't do it. She's running down the steps. And I said, oh, I don't want to slip. I said to my child in the middle, what were you thinking? I said, you know, mom was actually going to show you guys mercy and take you. Obedience is necessary. And not obedience because we get rewarded. But obedience is there because we love God. I talked to my son yesterday. They were away on the, on the, on the trip. And I said to my son, I, I said, how are you doing? How are things going? And I said to him, I said, son, you know, you, um, you have the opportunity to probably get away with a whole lot of things. You're on a long bus. His group is sleeping a little bit away. There were so many that went, so... All of them are sleeping at, the, at this four-story um, place in Gatlinburg, and then some of the other kids have to stay at the hotel. I said, you have an opportunity. You could probably get away with a lot of trouble. I said, you probably get away with a lot, and you know what? You might even get away with it, and I never, might never know. I said, I'm just asking you, son. I want you to be obedient and do right, not because you fear me. I want to ask you to do it because you love me. And I believe that's the same way that we ought to be obedient with God. 
yeah, we fear him because he's God. We fear him because Moses can fear him because he's going to do these plagues. But God is wanting to show his mercy. What God was doing with the Egyptians is God was showing his wrath. God was showing his judgment. But what he was doing was showing mercy to the Israelites. And so God is not interested in us afraid of him. That's why we serve him. We're obedient because he could turn us into a frog. <laughs> he could turn the water. Could you imagine opening your water on and blood coming out and your wife saying, yep, what'd you do now to God? You know, what'd you do this time? You really messed up. No, that's not why we are obedient. God desires for us to be obedient because of our love for him. Moses meets God and that love comes through a relationship with God. Moses now has had time with God. Moses now, we saw last week, he was discouraged and he saw God work through that discouragement. And we need to know the character of God. The more you know the character of God, the more you'll serve him because you love him, not because you fear him. And what God was showing is he is a God to be feared. He is the almighty God, but he's also a God of mercy. Do you know the Israelites could have just been totally destroyed with the Egyptians. He could have started over. But he wanted to show the Egyptians that he loved. And so he's looking for obedience. And, and we, need to, we need to use the same uh, uh, response here that Moses and Aaron used. And that was immediate obedience and instinctive obedience and loving obedience. And number two, the emphasis that we see here in verse number uh, uh, 12 through, uh, 8 down through 12, what we read, we're going to find this, that we see the emphasis on God's superior power over the Egyptian gods. See, the initial sign has to do with the snake. Well, it's the first thing he said. He said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take this and I'm going to throw this rod down. Now, the snake was one of the things that the Egyptians worshipped. Matter of fact, the pharaohs would always have a snake on their, on their uh, uh, hat wear and everything was snake. They feared them. The cobra, they, they're, they're magicians, they said here. And that word magicians would be translated into priest. Their religion had to do with worshipping the snake. And so it was not ironic that the first thing that God does is God says, I want you to take this and I want you to throw this rod down and what's going to happen is it's going to turn into a snake. They feared the snake. They understood the snake. So what did the magicians do? They said, we got our own magic. We worship that snake. That is our God. But the difference was this was the almighty God power, not the Egyptians' God's power. And so they throw all of their staffs down. Now, this is like one, this isn't a fair fight. This is one rod to all of their rods. And what's the Bible say there? Their rod, their snake swallowed up the Egyptian snakes. What was God showing them? His power is superior than all other gods. The very first thing he does, he could have done anything. He went right after the God that they worship, that snake. What he showed them was this, I am powerful. I am superior. My strength is greater than any God you can worship because the most powerful thing they worshiped was that snake. That snake was on Pharaoh's garments to show his authority. It was on his garment to show his power and for him to be feared in his priest, his magicians, they had no power when they matched up to the one true God. And that's what, that's what God was showing them. This emphasis that kept recurring over and over is God's superior power over Egypt's superior power. And so we find this pattern. God took on the gods of Egypt. And the only true and living God, he was going to perform signs that were so astonishing that there would be no doubt that he was superior. What was he doing? He knew that Israel was going to get into the Red Sea where the Red Sea was in front of them and Pharaoh was behind them. And what did he want them to do? Knowing that there was going to be a problem ahead, he wanted them to get it in right now. God is superior. When you get to the Red Sea, the, the, the human nature would be this. Let's turn back to the gods that protected us back in Egypt. And God was showing you they don't protect you. God was putting this miracle in their life because he knew they were going to need it for future problems. 
So what did God do? They put, they, they, he, he divides the Red Sea. He drowns Pharaoh. Then he wanted them to know this. You're going to get in the wilderness, and it's not going to be one of the gods that you depend upon that's going to give you water. It's going to be me that you depend upon that gives you water. It's not going to be one of the gods, the God of the land, that you're going to depend upon to give you food. It's going to be me. I'm going to drop it out of heaven. Matter of fact, I told Sue Rhino, they're doing one of these uh, uh, um, Bod for God movie and, and, you know, they eat real healthy there, you know. Um, and I said, if you truly want to be biblical in your eating, you should have angel food cake and quail and water, you know. That's what God gave them that came from heaven. But what was, what was, God, what was God showing them? The sky God's not going to give you anything I am. There wasn't enough quail in the sky to feed them every day, but there was enough that God could supply to feed them every day. There wasn't enough manna that could come from the ground or food from the ground that was going to feed them this, this two million people out in the middle of a desert. But God could put food wherever he wanted to put it. And so what God was showing them through these plagues was this, that whatever their need was, there was no God in Egypt that was going to supply. There was only one true God that was going to supply, and he showed them he was superior in every area uh, compared to the Egyptians' gods. And this was important for them because of what they needed to depend upon. I want you to see this, letter C, uh, the emphasis, the third emphasis that we see here in verse number 11 and 12. He says this, and Pharaoh also called the wise men and the sorcerers, now the magicians or the priests of Egypt. They also did in like manner with their enchantments. For they cast down every man his rod and they became serpents, but Aaron's rod swallowed up their rods. Letter C is this. The third one is this, we see these counterfeit signs. This text here, it mentions there's three groups who try to respond to this sign, and they try to do it in their own miracle, the wise men, the sorcerers, or the priests, or the magicians. You know what we find here? That Satan tries to counterfeit everything that God does. I'm going through on Sunday mornings, and I, well, I had a lot of response from this past Sunday morning. I showed the coin of the European Union with the, the woman and the beast, and I didn't get into all of it. I didn't have the time to get into all of it. Um, I shared with the staff some of the other research that I've done, and if you were to go to the European Union outside of their headquarters in Belgium, there's a large statue, and there's a large statue that sits right in their front of their headquarters, and that large statue is the woman riding the beast. If you were to research, now this is not, this, this is true. If you were to, to, to research who that is and why they're using that, what you would find, you would simply find is this, that, that woman is called Europa. Europa is the, is the goddess that Zeus finds. It's, a, it's Greek mythology that uh, uh, Zeus sees her and falls in love with her. He takes her into the sea. And there he commits an act with her and, she then is seen riding him out of the sea, just like John saw. The woman riding the beast out of, coming out of the sea. She is the mother of the judge of the underworld, or Satan. And this is the symbol they chose to represent this European Union. If you were to look at the first artwork that was, was paid for and used to promote the European Union, what it was is it said, many tongues, one nation, or one people. Many tongues, one people. And their symbol was the Tower of Babel. You believe that? You see, all the way from Genesis with Nimrod, all the way through Egypt, all the way to all these pagan nations, and it's going to be all the way to the end times looking at the Antichrist. Satan is doing everything he can to counterfeit who God is. Because Satan desires God's worship. Satan desires what belongs to God. He desires for himself. He's a jealous thing. And so what you find is he's always counterfeiting what he can so that you give glory to him so God does not receive glory. And we find that happening. So he uses other gods. He uses other resources. And what we find is this, that they're always fulfilling for a time, but they never last forever. The only thing that lasts forever is God. The only thing that fulfills forever is God. Everything else is a counterfeit and everything else has to be renewed. 
And so what Satan does is so we'll use, we'll use addictions and we'll use vices and we'll use fleshly, uh, fleshly desires to appease us for a moment. But what it does is it only fulfills us for a moment. It's counterfeit. These gods, they were only gods that could help them for the moment, but they were counterfeits. And what we find is, is there's always a counterfeit. They're always going to do something. Satan's ploy is always to show that he is God, but always we find that it's a counterfeit and it never fulfills and never gives lasting joy. And the Bible says this about sin. He said, the Bible says that sin is pleasurable what? For only what? A season. It wears off. So the things that we go after, so everything in life that we seek to fulfill us outside of God is a counterfeit. We find that in verse 11 and 12. In Exodus, what it shows us is that the evil may have real influence, but he is no match for God. Satan is a counterfeit. And we find that by these priests, they throw down their rods, but what they find is that God swallows up their rods. Number four is this, the perpetual hardening of Pharaoh's heart. We find in verse number 13, in the, and he hardened Pharaoh's heart that he hearkened not unto them as the Lord has said. And think about this, despite the miracles, Pharaoh remained insensitive. I don't know about you, but if you, um, you started seeing God work like that, wouldn't it wake you up? The reality is, is we do see God work. And we can look at Pharaoh and we could be kind of uh, 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 hard on Pharaoh. But sometimes we do the same. We see God work and we still aren't obedient. We convince ourselves that we can't follow biblical principles because it's just not going to get us where we need to be. And so we convince ourselves that we've got to follow a different plan or do it differently. And what do we think the outcome is going to be when we don't follow God's plan and we are not obedient? We get ourselves convinced for a moment that it's going to be okay, but we find ourselves out here away from God's plan. We find ourselves out here away from God's blessing. And we wonder, how did we get so far? We got this far because our heart was hardened just like Pharaoh. We get out here not trusting in the Lord, not believing in him, not letting him uh, uh, be number one in our life, and we put our trust in something else. And I would ask this, and everyone here tonight, I would know everyone here, and I assume that you've trusted Christ as your Savior. I would ask you this, as a child of God, how many times have we put our trust in something? And it's not God. It ruined our day because something happened. And we're not sure how we're going to get through this. Right? We're all that way. Something breaks. How are we going to get through this? God. It's not that something that works that causes your life to be great. It's God. It's not something that works that causes you to depend upon that. It's God. And the truth is this, everything that you think you need can break all around you and God is still God and he's still sufficient and he's still the one worthy to be praised. It's not the things working well in life that ought to point us to God. It's God himself and it's his character that ought to point us to him. And so everything else right now in the Egyptian life, he gets them all the way down to the worst of the worst. They're not just dwelling in Egypt, they're slaves in Egypt. They're not just slaves in Egypt, they're being beaten in Egypt. They're not just beaten in Egypt, they're having to work harder than they ever worked before in Egypt. I mean, it has not gotten any worse. This is horrible for them. They can't get any worse. They're at rock bottom, and that's where God allowed them to be because he wanted them to trust his character, not trust because he was blessing. And it not it easy to trust God when everything is going well? And when things stop going well, that's when like Satan, like the little commercial, you know, a little, little uh, 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 cartoon, you know, he sits on your shoulder, right? Have you ever had Satan sit on your shoulder? I mean, if you say yes, we're not going to think you're weird. We, we know it's cartoon, figure of speech. You ever have that whisper in your ear? 
You know what? That is a hardening of our heart. Pharaoh did, does that here. Despite all the miracles, he hardens his heart. He had no feeling for God. His heart's heavy and his heart's cold. And how could a child of God's heart get heavy and cold? Yeah. And it does. And we find the same thing happening here, this reoccurring emphasis. Then I want you to see number three is this, our recurring emphasis here is the plagues. Now remember, we have seen that there are four emphases in this section, right? Obedience, God's superior power, counterfeits, and the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And I want you to, uh, I want you to look with, the, with me with these, the first cycle of the plagues. All right, the first cycle of the plagues, what we find is this. We find the Nile, the Nile turns to blood. God's first display of superior power is he takes this Nile River. Look with me in verse number 14. And the Lord said unto Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuseth to let the people go. Get thee unto Pharaoh in the morning. Lo, he goeth out unto the water. And thou shalt stand by the river's brink against he come. And the rod which he turned to the serpent shalt thou take in thine hand. And so what we find here, it, it seemingly tells us Pharaoh's pattern. Pharaoh, Pharaoh's pattern is he goes and he washes in the Nile each morning. Now, again, it could be in numerous things. It's probably a washing, right, from a very hot night in Egypt. It's probably a cleansing. It's probably a refreshing Right After you guys stood in front of that grill tonight, right, in that heat, if someone came over with a hose, you probably wouldn't get too mad, right? Because it cool you down, right? Jumping in the pool, getting refreshed on a hot day. Boy, it's just soothing. And so he says to Moses, Moses, I want you to go to the place that Pharaoh goes and he worships where he finds relief. And he says, Moses, I want you to go there. And when Moses gets there, we find uh, he stands against the bank and he gets, says this, and thou shalt say unto him, in verse 16, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me unto thee, saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. And behold, hitherto thou wouldst not hear. So he says, thus saith the Lord, and thou shalt, thou, uh, shalt know that I am the Lord. What's the reason for this plague? So they know he's God. That's it. He says, I want to do something so that you know that I'm the Lord. And so what's he going to do? I'm going to smite with this rod that is in my hand. Now this rod is what? What's the last thing Pharaoh saw this rod do? Swallow all his serpents. So I'm going to show you my superiority once again. I'm going to show you that I'm the Lord. I'm going to take this rod and I'm going to hit it upon the waters which are in the river and they shall be turned to blood. Could you imagine that? And the fish that are in the river shall die. And the river shall stink. Now, just think about what he's saying right there. He says, number one, I'm going to take the rod that already beat your priest and ate up, swallowed up your priest's snakes. And I'm going to smite your river, the river you go to every morning for refreshment, the river you go to every morning for relief, the river you go to every morning for cleansing, the thing that you worship that gives you what gives you every morning. I'm going to do something, and you are not going to find the relief and the cleansing from that God any longer. You're going to see that it only comes from me. And then what else, what else does he do? All the commerce, all the trade, all the food that you would eat that comes from this river, it's dead. This river that you put so much in, I'm going to show you I'm God. You think you can get clean? Not when the water's blood. You think you can get refreshed? Imagine you're hot and sticky and you jump into a pool of blood. How many would say that's relief? No. You're worse. You get hungry. You know, the whole economy then shuts down because the fishermen can't go fish. Now, remember, they had to fish every day. They didn't have uh, refrigerators, right? They didn't have freezers. Everything is fresh. 
the morning, everything turns to blood. And immediately all the fish and all the sea things begin to die. We're not eating today. Now what's your God going to do? He says, not only, not only was this a place that refreshment is gone, your food is gone. And then he says this, and it stinks. You know what's interesting? Go on reading with me what, it, what the Bible then says. In the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink of the water of the river. Oh, good thing we got water back home. Not how many of you would say that? I just won't go to the river until it turns back right. Right? Well, oh, we got water yesterday in our buckets. Oh, I got a little stream in my backyard. God, who are you? I don't need the Nile. Oh, yeah, let's look on. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying to Aaron, Take thy rod and stretch out thine hand upon the waters of Egypt, upon their streams, upon the rivers, upon their ponds, and upon all their pools of water, that they may become blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so much as the Lord commanded. Once again, we see obedience. They didn't argue with God. What do we find? The Nile River turns to blood. In God's first display of his superior power, it's appropriate. The reason why this miracle on the Nile River, it was the lifeblood of Egypt. It was everything Egypt needed to be Egypt. And what God said is, you're nothing. Your gods cannot help you. It's me you must look to. And so what the Egyptians are seeing as a, a judgment, the people of God, they should be seeing that God is the God of power, God is the God of might, and God is the God to be worshipped. And then the second thing I want you to see with me here in, in uh, 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 we, we find is the, the, uh, um, the frogs. If you were to study through the next the next set of plagues you're going to find is the frogs. In verse number one of chapter eight, and the Lord spake unto Moses, go unto Pharaoh and say unto him, thus saith the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. And if thou refuse to let them go, behold, I will smite all thy borders with frogs. How many of you like frogs? We live across from a golf course. And so I taught my kids to go fishing. Now my fishing and your fishing are probably a little different. Your fishing might have to do with a hook and a fishing pole for fish, my has to do with a golf ball retriever in a 15-foot extension in a golf ball pond. And so we have gone out, we go out fishing at night, and we walk around these ponds and we recover these golf balls, and my kids love it. They know what a Titleist Pro V1 is. I mean, they know what all the good balls are. They now pay, that's a $4 ball, Dad. And I say, yeah, put it in the bucket. We're going to go home and wash them. So in four fishing things, foreign fishing in endeavors, we found 220 golf balls. Wow. Yeah. And so now my girls want to sell them back to the people that lost them. I think it's pretty good, you know. I said, yeah, let's do that. They think they're going to sell them back for $4 a ball. And I said, well, it doesn't quite work that way. So we're walking along one, one night, and, and um, this frog, this big old frog is sitting there in the tall grass, and, and Chloe and Lily are walking along looking for golf balls, and this frog jumps out of the grass into the water, you know, and, and they jumped out of their shoes and ran back toward me. I said, girls, it's a frog. Are you serious? And then they saw, like, the Moab frog, the mother of all, the Moaf, it's called, the mother of all frogs, you know. And this thing jumped out and scared them to death. One frog. Ladies, could you imagine opening your cupboards and just frogs? Walking in your, taking the, 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 the bed coverings down and frogs jumping out. Getting out of the shower and frogs <laughs> jumping all over you. Yeah, they're jumping on you now, aren't they? Huh? <laughs> Something jumped on her and she got scared. Just the thought of frogs jumping causes you to be afraid. What's God do here? He sends these frogs. And with the second plague, we find that frogs are coming into their house. We find that frogs are coming in their bedrooms. We find they're coming in their beds, in their ovens, where they're cooking their food. There's in, in, their, in their dishes, in every area of their life, these frogs are coming into where they're at. You know, it's kind of funny if you think about it, but frogs are pretty creepy though, aren't they? Really. If they weren't creepy, then they wouldn't have, you know, 
princesses kissing the frogs because that's gross. You know, if it wasn't gross, you'd have them kissing something else, but you have them kiss this frog. And who would do such a thing? Because frogs are gross. <laughs> and think about the frogs. God is opposing them. One goddess named uh, H-E-Q-E-T, Hequet, I guess is how you pronounce that. This is one of the gods that the Egyptians worshipped. It was pictured with the head and sometimes the body of a frog. So the first thing God does is he goes after their supply. He goes after their food. He goes after their relief. Then God says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to show you that this frog God that you worship, he's nothing. He, the, this goddess, the Egyptians, if you study their, 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 their god, gods, you would find that that god controlled the frog population. So they were praising this god for not allowing frogs to come in Egypt. They, they, this is crazy, I know, but the frog god also assisted the women in childbirth. I mean, it's crazy, but this is what they, they thought. So not only did it help their women to have children and assist them in childbirth, so they gave glory to this frog god. They would worship this frog god and praise this frog god for keeping the frogs from overtaking their land. And so the second god that God, the, the second little god that he goes after he goes after the frog god. And the frog god there was a frog. They were symbols of fertility. And it was a symbol of fertility and life. And it's not ironic that that's the one that God, he goes after. What does he go after them? I mean, what he goes after is this. I'm the God of life. I'm the God of blessings. The third thing, and, and I won't have the time to go through all these this evening, but the third thing is the gnats. In verse eight, or chapter 8, verse 16 through 19, um, the Bible says, And the Lord said unto Moses, Say unto Aaron, Stretch out thy rod and smite the dust of the land, that it may become lice throughout all the land of Egypt. Lice, could you imagine that? Oh. Do you ever get those notes home from school where they say, One of the kids in your class had lice? You may want to check. I just start itching when I read that letter. And I haven't been home yet. I get the letter through email and I'm like, this is disgusting. And, and God says, I'm going I'm to allow all this dust. Now they're in the desert. There's a lot of dust. It all turns to lice. Imagine sitting there just itching. I mean, that sounds great. We find this next plague. It comes unannounced. In, in, in scholars... Have, they have different ideas over what kind of insect it, uh, this, this was. Obviously, uh, our Bible says it's, it's lice or just something that would just continue to annoy you and eat at you and annoy you and make you itch. Could you imagine that? That's the third plague. And, 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 and notice here with me, the Bible says this, and they did so for Aaron stretched out his hand with his rod and smote the dust of the earth, and it became lice in man and in beast. All the dust of the land became lice throughout all the land of Egypt, and the magicians did so with their enchantment to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man and upon beast. Then the magician said unto Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They're finally getting it. You know what they're saying? This is something we can't do. If you want us to, the serpent thing, we can do that. The whole water to blood thing, we can do that. The whole frog thing, we can do that. But this one, this is only by the hand of God. What God did is God is bringing them to a place where they see only God can do this. We don't have the power. Matter of fact, we don't have the strength. Isn't it ironic that God is bringing them to a place where they're starting to see that they can't mimic, mimic this? They can't counterfeit this? This can't be of something that we are. This has to only be from the hand of God. And that's this lice that they bring us to. My time's done. I have to be finished. I could go on with this. this is, it just gets more and more interesting. But just think about this cycle. Obedience, 
God wants to show that he's superior. God wants to show that others, all their gods are counterfeit. We see the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And then the cycle of plagues, it comes to the place where God is doing these plagues for a reason. And every plague he shows, what he's reminding his people is he is God. He is to be trusted. He is to be obeyed. He is powerful. He is superior. Don't accept the counterfeit. Now, we could take a lesson like this and itch a little bit on the way home, you know. Well, we can take a lesson like this and we could understand and realize this. There is no substitute to God. And we've got a decision that we're going to make. We can either just be obedient and trust him. Or we can put our faith, we can put our trust, we can put our help in something else only to know it's no, never more powerful than God. And so I wonder this evening, what are you putting your faith in? What are you putting your trust in? Who is your God? What are you relying on right now? And maybe there's something you're going through. Maybe there's a struggle you're having. Maybe there's something that God is doing to increase your faith and you're holding something back, knowing that this is right, but getting yourself convinced that even though this is right, maybe where I'm at's a better way. Just realize tonight that's a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit. God's the only one true God. And to be here and live in obedience is always better than accepting the counterfeit that Satan offers. Because this fulfills, but then it leaves you empty. He fulfills and you overflow. Which one would we have? As a child of God, I pray that we always pick and choose truth.